You guys want to get into the book of Revelation? It's more excitement than first service. Because I had like two people in first service. Like, yay! We're doing it. Let's do it. Four months. Four months in Revelation. Four months. I know. It's going to be a lot, but it deserves that kind of attention. Okay? So we are going to spend four months in this book. And I think you can hopefully notice by the title. We're going to be talking about in the end, there's a new beginning. There's a very good intentional reason for that title. When we think about this letter in this book at the back of our Bibles, we usually think this is something that wraps it up. It's the finish. It's the conclusion. It's a little sad. It's a little scary. It's a little weird. But I want you to notice in this incredible book is a lot that's very hopeful, a lot that's very new, a lot that's very powerful. Okay? And so as we go through this, I hope you see, yes, there's an end in a part, but there's also a new beginning new earth, a new Jerusalem. There is a new identity that shows up in this book. And I hope you see all of that as we go through this powerful letter at the back of our Bibles. Now, what is it? It's a revealing. Revelation means a revealing. And you will notice that it is a singular revealing. Let's just get this out of the way right now. This letter is titled... Revelation, okay? Now, revelations, revelation. It's singular, not plural. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people call it revelations, plural. Why am I making such a big deal out of one S? Because it is one unified message to God's people through a guy named John with one direction, one goal, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and his return and what that means for them and what it means for us, okay? So as we're walking around and we're talking about hopefully what we're learning on Sunday, we're talking about the book of Revelation, not Revelations. Got it? Good, excellent. Who is it to? Some guy named John. John, it was written around the year 90 to 95 AD, and if you hear the name John, it usually provokes that question, is this John, that John? So is John of Revelation the John of the Gospel? For centuries, most people presumed that it was. Now, most theologians presume that it is not. I will leave this up to you guys to decide. One thing you will note as we go through the next four months, there will be times I raise information for you and I'll raise theories for you. But if the word of God doesn't dictate it clearly, I'm going to let you decide because I'm always going to defer to this book, the Bible. Okay? So some believe it's the same John. Most theologians believe it is not. And there's two main reasons. The style of this letter is very different than the Gospel of John. In fact, the style of this letter is far more similar to how Paul writes. Now, they don't think it's Paul. They just think it's in a very, very different style than the Gospel of John is written. Second reason is the content. The content being a bunch of visions is very, very different than the Gospel of John and the subjects that are in there. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I will leave that completely up to you. But that way you know some people think it's that John, some people think it's a different John. It doesn't leave me, it doesn't cause me to lose any sleep at all. Okay? It's a guy named John, it's a message from God, and it's in the Word, and it is true. Whether it's that John or a different John doesn't matter to me at all. I believe every single word of this letter and this book. Okay? Who is it for? Seven other churches. And I want you to notice this. 
It's a letter that's sent to seven other churches, specifically, not Eastside Christian Church. Does that mean it's irrelevant to us? No, it just means it's weird. It's foreign. We're looking in on something else, a different time, a different place. It's quite valuable to us, but when we read through it, we're like, this just seems strange. It should, because it's a letter written to seven different churches. Very valuable, right? Just as important as every other book of the Bible, but just know that's going to make it a little bit strange as we read through it and we try to understand it, okay? What type of a book or a letter is it? Like I said, this, this is not an easy letter or book, and here's another reason. It's actually three different styles, three different genres. First is a style called an apocalypse. That's its own literary style. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The second is that it is a prophecy. Hopefully many of you are familiar with what a prophecy is. It's a message from God through a human mediator, and it's about what happened, what is happening, or what will happen. Okay, that's a prophecy. And the third thing is it's a letter. So it's a letter written by John to these seven churches. It's all three of those things. Go figure, right? Like I said, it is a revealing, okay? And when you think about a revealing, you're being revealed something, all right? And as we reveal this, as I reveal this to you guys from up here, I'm going to commit to you, I will always, always, always defer to the Word of God. There will be times in here I'm going to raise to you guys some theories of interpretation that are out there. There's times I'm not, because it's really going to raise more questions than it answers, okay? There's times I'm going to tell you this is probably what it is, and there's times I'm going to tell you I don't know, but I promise you I will always come back to this book. Always, always, always will defer to the Word of God as it's written out in Revelation, okay? That's my commitment to you. Now, any of you guys ever woke up? Okay, maybe it's true. You guys ever woken up? Yes, of course, like every single day, right? Okay, when you wake up, whether it's waking up from sleep or waking up from a nap, I don't know about you, but my eyes sometimes take a little while to adjust. And I kind of open them, and I open them again, and I look around, and it's like, where am I? And how long have I been sleeping? Or how long have I not been sleeping? Right? But it takes us a little while to process when we open these babies up. Same thing with this book. It's going to take you guys some time, especially if you've never gone through Revelation before closely. It's going to take you some time. Give your eyes time to adjust. Give your heart, give your mind time to adjust to some of the strangeness and beauty that comes from this letter. Okay? Could take you weeks or maybe even a month to get used to some of these visions and these images and these words. Okay? So I would encourage you to do that as we go through it. One more thing to look for. Lots of Old Testament, okay? This letter has hundreds, hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. And don't miss them because they're not quotations, right? So you're not going to see necessarily like this part of Isaiah quoted in Revelation, whereas you will see tons of images and themes from Isaiah, the prophets from Genesis, so many Old Testament books that are in here, not because they're quoted, but because they're alluded to generally. And that's one of the reasons why this book is so powerful at the end of the Bible. It actually takes us right back to the beginning and back into the Old Testament. So now let's get into it. Revelation 1 is what we're going to be talking about today, the Alpha and Omega. And we're going to start out with verses 1 and 2. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So right off the bat, we're told what it is. It's a revelation, okay? Remember I said earlier we're going to talk about apocalypse? Here it is. The word for revelation is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis should sound familiar to you. That is the ancient root of our word apocalypse. The problem is, when you hear that word apocalypse, you probably think about world ending and Armageddon, okay? But this word isn't limited to that. An apocalypsis is an uncovering. It's a disclosing. It's a revealing. It's an opening up. It's not a closing down. It's not about just the end of the world. It's about a new beginning. It is about a new hope. And I really hope you don't miss this. As we go through this book for the next four months, we're going to infuse this with hope and with worship. Because worship is another main reason why we get this beautiful book. Okay? So as you think about it, as people talk to you about it, I don't want to look at that book because it's about the end of the world. Encourage them to say, read it. Let's read it together. Because there's actually a lot of hope. There's a lot of newness in this book as well, and we're going to look for those things, okay? Now, Apocalypse, like I said, it was its own literary style. Back then, people would have been very used to reading an Apocalypse, and Apocalypse had three basic elements that all Apocalypses have, okay? And here they are on the screen. One's a narrative, fancy word for a story. It's a story, okay? Second, it's mediated by otherworldly being to a human. In other words, a message from God or an angel or something outside of our world sent to a human. And it discloses a transcendent reality, different time, different space. This is why I think it's so hard. We read it, we're like, that doesn't seem like now. And it's not supposed to. It's supposed to seem like a different time and a different place. And before that seems too inaccessible to you, remember all the famous stories that we love that are very transcendent. Star Wars. Harry Potter. Star Wars fans. These powerful stories that have stuck with us now. And they're transcendent. Different space, different time, and we love them. And we should have that same type of attitude about this book. Okay? Now, we're told here where we get this message. And I don't want you to miss the chain of communication on how we got this book. It goes from God to Jesus, to the angels, to John, through translators, and then it got to you and to me. How many of you have played the uh, old game telephone? A telephone you play as a kid and you whisper in someone's ear, right? And that person, yeah, exactly. And you know how poorly the game of telephone goes, right? Because we as humans, we mess this up all the time. You get enough of us lined up and you share one thing, by the time it gets to person six or seven, it is a complete mess. Didn't happen with this book. This book was perfectly passed down through the chain because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was involved in every single part of this communication. From God to Jesus to the angels to John to the translators to you, the Holy Spirit has been there saying, no, the word that you get, the truth that you and I get, is the same message that came right from God. It's a beautiful image of his involvement with the chain of communication. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. All right, so first thing I want you to notice is how this is supposed to be shared. Read aloud. 
That is why we're going to have it read aloud every week as we go through this. You guys know I'm big on this anyway, but when we're told in the instructions you're supposed to read this aloud, we need to be doing it. Okay? And you can, of course, read it on your own quietly, but we're told here by John that this actually has power when you hear it. And I think there's one big reason for that, and it's one of the most neglected gifts that we have that God gave us. It's your imagination. God has given each of us the ability to imagine things outside of what we're seeing, feeling, hearing, right? Something transcendent, to imagine it. And I want you guys to do that. As you hear this, I want to encourage your imagination. Imagine, what does this look like in your head, in your heart? I'm going to put up images from time to time of what it might look like, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want it to be in here and in here for you guys. And I want to encourage you, especially we're going to get to a section where John turns and he has this image of Jesus. Close your eyes as I read it. Just close them. Fall asleep if you want. You guys heard the sermon on rest last week, right? Picture it in your mind, in your heart. Use your imagination in this book. It gives it additional power. What do we do with it? Keep it. We are keepers of this book. The word that's used here is tereo. It means to guard, keep in view, take note, or watch over. Think about it this way. You can't guard a prisoner that you don't look at, that you don't watch, right? If we're supposed to keep this book, we need to be looking at it. And when people want to talk to us about what we believe about the end of the world or the return of Jesus Christ, we need to say, you know what I believe? This book. Let's look at this book. Not let me tell you about what so-and-so's theory is. Let's look at this book. What does it say? That's our job. Guard it, keep it, watch over it, and make sure others are looking at the exact same book. Now, there, uh, one of the many things that makes preaching this book and teaching this book challenging is there's just some stuff in here that's tough to explain, and I'm going to go out at one of them today, okay? What is near? We're told here that what's going to come is near. When is that? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to give you an exact answer on that, okay? You're going to hear the word near. You're going to hear the word soon, and they're not easy. Because what, 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 is, what is near? The word that's used here is egus. It means near or close. Now, what's interesting about the idea of near or close is that's going to have a different definition for you and maybe for you and probably even different for me. Because time appears relative. Science has actually shown this, that time appears relative to different people. In fact, the faster you move, the slower it seems to go. Okay, so time is relative. It's different for John, and it's different for us. And then we're going to add another factor. You know who time's really different for? God. Very good. Second Peter, we're told how time works for God. A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So if I'm doing the math on this right, and that is my favorite subject, okay? If I'm doing the math on this right, that means we're less than 2,000 years after this was written. Right? It's written in 90 to 95. We're in 2018, which means we're less than two days away in the eyes of God. That's near. That's soon. That's close. Go figure. <laughs> right? It is not easy to comprehend this, but I would encourage you guys to think about that relativity and think about one other thing. 
This is not about predicting when it's going to happen. It's about being prepared when it does happen. We should spend less time trying to figure out whether the end of the world is coming today and more time making sure we're ready when it happens. This afternoon, tomorrow, next week, next year, next generation, next century, we need to make sure that we and those around us are ready because it's near, it's coming. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So notice right off the bat, it's a letter written from John to seven churches. Now, if you're looking at this, you think, what's the deal with seven churches? Are there only seven churches? Is that all that's happened, right, since Jesus has come and gone? The answer is no, there's not only seven churches. There are seven churches that are on a circular courier route through Turkey. So pretend that you're a mail courier back then. If you were a courier, you would actually go on a circular route through the area that we now consider Turkey, and you would stop in seven spots. And it's those seven spots that have seven churches, and John writes this letter to those seven churches in those seven places. And there's another reason for that. We're going to get to that in a minute. But that's why it's sent to seven churches, okay? Other reason is you just think about the number seven. It's a very popular number in the Bible, and there's a reason for that. Seven for them, and it's even come to be known now as a number that represents completion. Perfection. So when you read perfection, don't just think it's flawless. It is. It's perfect. But it's complete. It's finished. It's done. And I think that's why it's at the end of our Bible. It finishes everything off. And so I think that's one of the other reasons we have seven churches that this is sent to. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. So it is from Jesus, the faithful witness, and I love this image of him as the firstborn of the dead. Think about this. Like how counterintuitive that is. And that's who Jesus was. That's who he still is. He was the first one to come back from the dead, the original resurrected Jesus Christ, and then not the last, right? Thanks be to him, he is able to resurrect and bring all of us with him forever. I love that image, though. Jesus Christ as the firstborn of the dead, the original resurrected one. And not just that, he's a ruler of kings. Remember earlier I said, I need you to use your imagination I need you to do that now. I want you to imagine if all world leaders led like Jesus leads. It would be perfect, right? His grace and his justice, both inseparable. Every single leader, our cities, our states, our countries, the world. Imagine if he literally dominated every single world leader. If he doesn't now, there's a promise coming that he's going to, and every single one of them, and every single one of us, is going to have to answer to Jesus, the ruler of kings. Verse 6, And made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. I don't know if we think about this enough, that you and I were made to be part of a kingdom. And it's a Christian kingdom. And the only thing that gets us in 
is the Christ part, Jesus, right? But think about this. We're part of this. When we say we're believers in Jesus Christ, if we believe that, that we're part of this Christendom, and this Christian kingdom is more important than anything else we belong to, anything else, more important than our city, our state, our country, our planet, we're part of a kingdom that transcends all of that. And the ruler of that is this Lord, this Jesus Christ, this one who is coming as the rider on the white horse. And yes, he referred to you as a priest. Don't miss this in Revelation. You now are a priest. The word is Iraeus. It means priest or believers serving God under a new covenant. And if you're looking up at these two pictures on the screen and you see these two guys on the left with their robes and their hats and their staff, and you're like, that's not me. You're right. Not you, it's not me, as you can tell by my attire. We're far more like this lady on the right. On her knees, kneeled down, praying before the Lord of Lords. Humbly acknowledging that we are not worthy of the grace shown us by Jesus Christ. That's us as priests. That's what the world needs to see more of. Us on our knees, humbly witnessing to the goodness of Jesus. That's us as priests. Verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. Gets your attention, right? Look, he's coming. No idea exactly what this will look like. Right? Yeah, it should kind of evoke that kind of glory, that, that sort of excitement. But I do, I want you to picture this as you go through this. What would this look like? The coming of Jesus on the clouds. Everyone's going to see. Everywhere. All around the globe. Even those who pierced him. Even those who don't believe in him. Even say they're going to have to see this Jesus. What are they going to do? Well, we're told about these tribes. Okay, what are these tribes? The word here is fule. Fule means tribes or peoples. Or nations. So just think people groups. Groups of people. Okay, so can we translate tribes of the earth? But I want you to notice you've got to put the tribes and the earth together. Another way to think about this is that all worldly people will wail. In other words, all people who think that this world is all it's about are going to wail. Wail. Wailing's a big deal. Okay, wailing's not like I shed a tear. Word is kopto. Beat one's breast as a strong expression of grief or remorse. To mourn or lament. This is deep, deep sadness. Why? Here's the way I think about it. Jesus' good reveals our bad and we can't handle it. Think about coming face to face with Jesus Christ. It would be great. It would be glorious. And it would be like, you are too good. All of his goodness, all of his gloriousness, all of his grace, all of his perfection, his truth, his humility, his mercy, I would just be like, I'm not worthy of any of that. And for those who are worldly, those who think that literally this life, this world is all there is, yeah, I'd beat my breast too. Out of complete grief and lament over the goodness of who Jesus is, and yet he still came for you and for me. And he says this, 
Verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. A couple things I want you to notice. You're going to see this over and over and over again as we go through this book. There's this repeated reference of time, and it's about was, okay? So what's behind you? It's about is right now, and it's about the future. So as you read this book, think about this. It's a statement of what it was, what is now, and what is to come, okay? And we're told that the reason he does this is because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. And before he even gets to that super cool statement, he makes this profound statement. Now, we translate it, I am. But if you read it in the Greek, it would say, ego, ami. Ego, ami. He just says, I am, I am. I am, I am. Looks repetitive, but it is so powerful. When God was asked to give his name, he said, I am, Yahweh. I am. That's my name. And so Jesus here is saying, I am, I am. In other words, Jesus is God. There's the definitive statement here that Jesus is God. God is Jesus. The Son is the Father. The Father is the Son. They are forever connected. And he is the one coming back for you and for me. Ego, me. I am, I am. Then he says, Alpha and Omega. It's a really big statement. I want you to think about it three ways. So the statement that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega is a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 6 and 48, 12 says that the one who is coming will be the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Those are the first and last characters of the Greek alphabet. Okay, so it's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a statement that Jesus is the beginning and Jesus is the end. You're going to see this again in Revelation 21, 6. So it means in the beginning, if you remember the beginning of the year, we started in generation, gen, uh, excuse me, in Genesis. Well, I said generation. I just combined Genesis and Revelation. There is a reason for that. I want us to start the year in the beginning and end it at the end, and I want you to see in the end the beginning. When God created, he spoke. And when he spoke, John 1.1 tells him he spoke Jesus. The words that come from the mouth of God are Jesus Christ, right out of John 1. Jesus was there when it all started, and he's going to be there when it all ends. It's an incredible picture of the fullness and the eternity of Jesus Christ. One more thing. Jesus is the start and the ultimate, right? He's the alpha, and he's the omega. That's important when we think about our own discipleship. This is going to come up when we do our discipleship class. Jesus Christ is where we start, and he's where we end. So when we're baptized, we're just getting started. Right? Baptism is not graduation. Baptism is a statement that I believe in Jesus Christ, and he is now my goal, he's my destination, he's my ultimate, he's my omega. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to figure that out. And he goes to work on us, when we get off track, and we go back to where? Jesus, the Omega, the end. This is who he is. And by the way, he's almighty. Note in Revelation, probably more than any other book of the Bible, the power of Jesus Christ. This is no weak Jesus, folks. This is a Jesus who is in charge. And one of the things I'm most excited about is we're going to go through this book and we're going to wrap up this book right around Christmas time. 
And so as we're celebrating the coming of the Savior as a baby, we're going to remember what that baby grew into. And he's the rider on the white horse. He's the one who sits at the right hand of the Father right now. And he came our direction as a baby. This is no weak, powerless Jesus. Verse 9. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You read this, you're like, oh, this is cool. John's sharing with us. But I want you to know what he says he's sharing with you. He also says he shares this with Jesus, by the way. He's sharing these three things with us. Persecution, kingdom, and patient endurance. I don't know about you guys, but I only want one of these things. Give me the kingdom part, right? But persecution? Patiently enduring? No thanks. And yet that's the job. Jesus said the same thing. You will be persecuted in my name. If you believe this and you live this out, you will be persecuted. But yes, we get to be in a kingdom forever with him. We just talked about that. And you're going to need to endure it patiently. Because it's near. It's soon. I can't even tell you how long it's going to be, but you just need to endure it. And I'm not going to say too much about this third part, because that's one of the main messages for next week in the part that's written to those seven churches. The message to the church is patiently endure. We'll talk about that more next week. So this is Potmos. Anybody want to go? Yeah. How many of you guys been to Potmos? Anyone been to Potmos? We had one guy in the last service. Awesome. Um, so it looks beautiful, right? But before you think that um, John's just like sitting on the coast of the ocean there, watching, looking down through the beautiful, beautiful blue water, uh, we gathered he's probably in a cave. He's enclosed. And there's two theories why he's there. Some believe he was actually imprisoned there, meaning he was guarded. He could not physically leave there. And some think he was just exiled there. In other words, he's running there to get away from persecution. Okay? But he's enclosed. He's probably not sitting on the beautiful beach. Inside a cave, and he is alone. Picture this. You're enclosed, and you're alone, and you're getting these visions. You're pretty scary. We also know one other thing. John had been treated with cruelty. So he had gone through persecution. And I think that's an important thing. I don't want to belabor it, but I think it's important to think about that's a step in John's journey. And I think it's an important step that actually caused him to get these incredible visions that he shared with us. Verses 10 and 11. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I always say that one. It's a hard one to say. I'm in the Spirit. What does that mean, in the Spirit? The Bible gives us a few clues, specifically there in the New Testament, what it looks like to be in the Spirit. It's how Jesus was baptized in John 1.33. So when Jesus was baptized, we know he came up out of the water and the Spirit was present. So something outside of ourselves, something even outside of Jesus is present when we're in the Spirit. We're told in John 4, 23 to 44, this is how we worship God. One of the things I hope you guys notice in this next four months is what we're reading and studying is going to percolate into our worship. 
before the message and after the message. This is a book of worship. And it will change the way we sing to him, we pray to him, and worship him. Because when we're worshiping God, we're told in John that is to be done in the spirit. Some people will say it after church, like just the spirit was so present this morning. And it's funny, we're like, yes, but we don't even know what that means. We're like, we just know it's there. Like, he was there. There was something outside of us. There was something powerful there this morning. That's the Spirit. That's what it looks like to be in the Spirit. And that's where John was. One more thing. In the Spirit is how we see visions. Uh, John writes it here, and we get it from Revelation 4.2 and 17.3. The Spirit allows us to see something beyond just these eyes and to see something through the Spirit. So that's where John is when he gets this vision and he writes this out to these seven churches. Here's the list again. Notice the Eastside Christian Church is not on it. So it's going to seem a little bit strange, okay? But it was written to these seven churches. And like I said, there's a couple reasons for that. One of them, it's on that circular courier route through what is now Turkey. But also in these seven churches in these seven cities, the imperial cult was more securely in place. What that means is that they were worshiping the emperor in these seven cities. They were worshiping the leader of the area, the empire. In other words, they're worshiping someone on earth. One of the prominent messages of this book is that cannot happen. There is no leader on earth that we should bow to, period. The only one we bow before is the Lord Jesus Christ is our God. And so this message was sent to a place where a lot of people were kneeling before an emperor. And the prominent message here is that has got to stop. Now, why do you write to a church? I have been working with and associated with churches long enough. Well, there's basically two reasons why you write a letter to a church. One, because you want something. And two, because you want to give something. And usually it's one of these two Reasons. I tried to picture what it would look like to get this letter sent to Eastside Christian Church and, and a copy put in my mailbox. It kind of freaked me out a little bit. Whoever wrote this was crazy. But this is really convicting. And I think John's letter fits both of these reasons. He does want something from these churches, and I think he wants something from this church here as we read it today. He wants to change us wants to change the way we see Jesus Christ, wants to change the way we worship, wants to change the way we see the world. He wants something. And he does want to give something. He wants to give us these beautiful images of who Jesus is. He wants to give us hope. He wants to give us a new beginning. That's why you write a letter to a church. Now, these next few verses, I want to really encourage you. Close your eyes and picture what this might have looked like to John. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white, as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, 
and his face was like the sun, shining with full force. Just hold on to that image for a minute. Just the power of that. I'll show you here, this is kind of one of the more famous depictions of that. I don't think this even holds a candle to what it actually looked like to John. I show this to you guys because I want you to focus just on some of the features that are described. Specifically, those eyes of fire and that long sword that's coming out of Jesus' mouth. What is the deal with Jesus' eyes of fire? When I picture Jesus, I don't picture eyes of fire. Okay? So why would Jesus have eyes of fire? Three things I want you to focus on when you think about fire. One thing we know about fire is it just burns. Burns and burns and burns until it can't burn anything else. When Jesus looks at you, he looks all the way in. All the way to the core. He doesn't just see what we say. Doesn't just see what we do. He sees right through to the heart, right through to the mind, and he gets right to that core. And what does fire do? It refines what it contacts. Right? Remember the, the melting properties of fire. Everything he sees on its way into our mind heart, he changes it. He's going to refine it. He wants to purify it if you'll let him look. If you'll let him see all the way in. And this third thing is an important characteristic of fire as well. It warms what it contacts. Fire is so powerful, you don't even have to touch it to feel its warmth. Jesus does this. His gaze should also do this. Give us a warmth and a comfort. And then his mouth. Think about this two-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. This is his word. This is this book. Hebrews 4.12 Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing it until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you guys thought about when you brought the Bible in today, whether it's in a bound book or walk around with it all day on our phones or our tablets, you're armed. You have a two-edged sword. And it's amazing. And it is powerful. And it is protective. And that is our word of God. That comes out of the mouth of God. The mouth of Jesus. And it's got two edges on it. Verses 17 to 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and see, I'm alive forever and ever, and I had the keys of death and of Hades. Seems like a very appropriate response of John to seeing this image of Jesus. Fall down at your feet like you're dead. This is a very normal biblical response to God. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. I mean, angels themselves can be kind of scary. God shows up, Fall on your feet, fall on your knees at worship. That's what worship is. If you look up the word proskuneo in the New Testament, it literally means to kneel, to hit the deck. And that's where he wants us. But you'll notice it's fearing him and nothing else. No emperor, no worldly leader, no neighbor, no friend that's not a friend anymore. Jesus. That's it. 
And that's where we belong. And there we are priests when we fall on our knees in response to Jesus Christ. The one who's alive forever and ever, whatever that looks like. I don't know what you guys, but I struggle to picture this. I can't even comprehend forever and ever. Because my understanding is finite. I've only been around for a few decades now. I can think of things in there, what I can remember, right? Man, you asked me to know what was before me and what's coming later. I don't know. But that's where God is, forever and ever. And I don't think I will fully understand eternity until I get there. And you look at him and you say, you, you've really been around, always. And you will be around, always. And if you believe in him, he'll be with you, always, forever and ever. And he holds some keys, really powerful keys. These are the keys to death and to Hades, right? Two functions of keys. And get you in, and they can keep you out. Right? You don't have the keys, you're not getting in. Jesus holds the keys. And I want you to note that. It's Jesus who has the keys to death and Hades, not Satan. Jesus. Jesus is in charge, not Satan. And he can get you in, and he can keep you out. And because of what he did on the cross for you and for me, we are kept out if we will believe in him, if we will follow in him, the one who holds the keys to death and to Hades. Verse 19. Now write what you've seen. What is and what is to take place after this? So John fortunately wrote all of this down. How many of you guys in here keep journals? Anyone keep journals? Be a physical journal? Good. Very good. Be a physical journal. You can keep notes on your phone. That's where I write my notes. Some place where you can write down the things that you think about, things that you want to remember, and especially here, write what God reveals to you. And it doesn't need to be a vision like this. I've never had a vision like this, okay? But God often speaks in whispers and directions and calls and, hey, I think you should call so-and-so. I think you should maybe go and resolve this. Have you taken care of this? Write those down. Because when we write down what God reveals to us, it has a lot more power than if we just keep it up in here. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Isn't that nice? An interpretation. Don't get used to it. One of the very interesting things about this book and the way Jesus, when he's talked to his disciples, early on he'd be like, so that parable I told, this is what it means. And then over time, especially with his disciples, he'd be like, you didn't get that? And we do that, right? If we've ever raised a kid or taught anyone anything, we do this. We start with milk. We start with baby steps. We make sure they get it. And then over time we're like, no, no, leave the nest. You got this. And as we turn the pages of this letter, you're going to notice this. We're not going to get all those interpretations, and it's going to get challenging. And we're going to talk about those as they get challenging. Again, sometimes I will help you understand the answer, and sometimes I'm going to be with you and say, I don't know. But it's powerful. And that's what the Word of God says. But I would encourage you guys as you go through this, 
Think about what you know about God, what you know about his book, and let that guide you as you interpret the signs and visions that we get. One more thing, angels, 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 angels. You are going to get to know and see a lot of angels in this book. And you think, I think that's good too. But when you think about heaven, when you think about the spiritual realm, I want you to picture like a lot of angels. Not just a handful. Like a host. Okay, like thousands, millions, I don't know, billions of these angels. All of this heavenly host of angels that are messengers from God to us. And yes, when they show up, they're a little scary. And they're powerful. And they've got really important messages for us. So look for these angels as we read this book. We're going to take communion during the next few songs. And as you prepare your heart to do that, I want you to remember that image we get of Jesus Christ as the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The eternal one. And because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, which we're going to remember as we take communion, we get access to eternity. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Let's pray before we take communion and sing the next few songs. God, we thank you so much for this book, this letter written by John to those seven churches passed on to us and the visions it includes these glimpses of who you are, God, who you are, Jesus, in your glory, your mightiness, your power, your truth, your grace, and your mercy. And as we think about these visions and the power and the holiness and the whiteness, we have to remember that that white went red. And as we take communion, we remember that that you, almighty Jesus Christ, gave your body for us. And as we take the bread, we remember the body of Jesus broken for us. As we take the cup of juice, we remember the almighty blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us and for all so that we can be with you forever. We thank you, we love you, and Jesus, it's in your name we do this and pray. Amen.